This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, where I interview authors about their latest works. Listen to what inspired the storyline, how their covers and titles were chosen, their personal connection to the story, and other fascinating tidbits about the authors themselves. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. I can be found on Instagram and Pinterest at Thoughts from a Page. And if you have any comments about the podcast or feedback for me, I can be reached at Cindy H. Burnett at att.net. Elsie Shaw is the pen name of internationally best-selling author Lynn Constantine, who also writes with her sister as Liv Constantine. Their debut thriller, The Last Mrs. Parrish, was a Reese Witherspoon book club selection, and their critically acclaimed books have been praised by USA Today, The Sunday Times, People Magazine, and Good Morning America, among others. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. I apologize in advance that the sound quality is not as good on this episode as it usually is. Welcome, Lynn. I am really looking forward to speaking with you today about The Silent Conspiracy. How are you? Thank you. I'm well. How about you? I'm doing great. Well, before we begin, why don't you explain why you're using Elsie Shaw for this series, just to help everybody connect the dots? So I write with my sister as Liv Constantine, uh, which is a combination of our names, Lynn and Valerie. So when I decided to write a separate series on my own, and I was debating using my name, which is Lynn Constantine, we all felt, the publishing team all felt that it was too similar to Liv and that there would be confusion because while they're both written under the umbrella of the thriller genre, the Liv books are more psychological thrillers, domestic thrillers, and the Elsie Shaw books are conspiracy slash political thrillers, one more action oriented. So we didn't want there to be confusion I think that makes perfect sense that you would need to distinguish between the two because you want people to understand the type of book they're reading when they pick it up. So it's helpful to have Elsie Shaw doing the political conspiracies and then you and your sister kind of writing more of the domestic thrillers. How did you come up with the subject matter for this one? Well, The Silent Conspiracy is a follow-up to The Network, which is a book that I began many, many years ago when I was working in corporate marketing. And at the time, it struck me just how susceptible all of us are to the images and messages that inundate us on a daily basis. And so the idea came to me of this one sort of mastermind using the media, entertainment, and legislature in concert to push, a, push an agenda, which is Damon Cross in the book. So the network is very much about manipulation of the public, with, with obviously without their realizing it, through all of these means. And so it's told through the story of, of Taylor and Jack, Jack Logan and Taylor Parks, who are investigative journalists, and they get caught up in this conspiracy and are running for their lives through the first book and trying to figure out who Damon Cross is and how he's gotten these different power players into position. So the silent conspiracy takes off about 18 months after the network ends and they believe that they have vanquished Damon Cross but what the reader knows what they don't know and that is that he is still very much alive but under a different name so there the story takes off there and it continues although what they're investigating and what they're involved in is is very different in the silent conspiracy than it was in the network well i think the idea of being inundated by all the different things we are all the time is so relevant for right now. And that makes your story very relevant as we head into this new election and all the different ways that people are being influenced by other parties and don't even realize it. Right. And it's an age old thing, I, I think, whether, yeah, obviously, as, as 
times change and technology increases, there are more and more ways in which that can happen. But I'm sure that just being human nature, it's something that we've probably always had to contend with and has been present. Well, certainly, I agree with you on conspiracies. And yes, it was just a different way of disseminating the information. Yes. Did you have to do any research for this one? I did. There's a pharmaceutical thread in this book, as well as a lot of neuroscience and brain science. And so I spoke with a few different doctors that I I usually go to for my research, as well as a lot of internet research and ordering books on the subject matter. And then some, a little bit of legal, because there's a whole Supreme Court case occurring with the insurance industry. So in, in some of those cases, I either spoke with people, oftentimes I will order books and do a lot of reading and then talking to certain people about What do you hope your readers take away from this book? Obviously that they enjoy it, that it's entertaining, but I also would hope that people will take away the reality that we really need to bet our information before we believe it, that there is just so much flying at all of us from so many different directions. And unfortunately, oftentimes the truth is bent to, to service someone else's agenda. So I think I would say, don't just believe everything that you read or that you hear but really do your investigative work yourself and make sure that you understand all sides, every angle of a story and what's going on before you you make assumptions. I agree. And I also think that to try to attract attention, so many of the titles of stories are misleading or the headlines because they're wanting you to click and read it. So I find that really frustrating sometimes when I see a headline and I go to read the story and it really doesn't relate much at all to what they said in the headline. It was more they just wanted to grab my attention. Absolutely. Yes, I agree. Or when you read those stories where you have to keep like paging through to get to the point where they're trying to like lure you in with this question that never seems to get answered until you've seen 20 ads right before you get to the end of the article. Well, you also write with your sister under the name Liv Constantine, as we discussed. How did that come about? Well, my sister and I have always been avid readers and my whole family, as a matter of fact, from the, some of my earliest memories as, as a young girl, we're going to the library with my mom and picking books out. So when we became adults, we talked about the fact that we were reading at the time a lot of ethnic stories, family sagas, and we realized that there were, we didn't really see any about Greek families and we're, we're Greek. So we decided to try our hand at writing a our own book about that. So we, we wrote Circle Dance, a story about two Greek sisters, fiction. And this was, gosh, 20, 20 years ago or so. And we found that we really enjoyed working together. We got a small publisher and had a, a small print run. And this was before eBooks and, and email and that sort of thing. And then I moved to Connecticut. My sister stayed in Maryland and our lives kind of diverged. I had young children. We, we have two brothers in between. So we're 13 and a half years apart. So we kind of stopped the writing for a while. And then when I was working in corporate marketing, which was when I began work on the network, even though it took many, many years before it finally came to fruition, my sister, I got really back into it full time. I had gone to a writing conference and I decided I was going to pursue this. This was maybe seven years ago. And she said, I I think I'm at a point where I would like to start writing again. How do you feel about doing another collaboration? So I said, yeah, that would be great. And we wrote another book, which is in a drawer. And then we wrote The Last Mrs. Parish together. And that was the book that got us our agent and that really, our publishing contract and really propelled our writing career. So we just continued to write together after that. I didn't realize you guys were so far apart in age. That's interesting. Yeah. 
So when you write together, what does that look like? Do you each write a chapter and go back and forth or how does that process look for you guys? Well, we start, it's evolved a lot over the, we've now written five books together. And so it, it seems like every book we do something a little bit different or we kind of improve on the process each time. When we, first, when we wrote The Last Mrs. Parish and Circle Dance, we, we actually primarily took a character. And even though both of us wrote in that character as well, and in some of those parts, we still sort of had it separated. But then we realized it made more sense for us to both be immersed completely in every single character. So then we started doing chapters. And what we do is we, when we start writing a book, we talk a lot, we brainstorm, and we come up with what our premise is. And typically we know what our twist is going to be. And so we flesh all the characters out and we go back and forth in terms of background. And this can take anywhere from a couple of weeks to a month, month and a half. And then when we're ready to begin writing, we talk every day and we, and we kind of give each other an idea of what each is going to write. And then we email the chapters to each other and we edit each other's work. And now we're at a point where we don't even write a complete chapter all the time. So I may begin a chapter and write, say, six or 700 words, and then I'll send it to Valerie and say, hey, you want to finish this? And she'll do the same. And it's really nice because sometimes you run out of steam with an idea and the other person can pick it up and take it to a better place. And also sometimes if you're stuck, it's great to get something that's already been started and to finish it. That way for the entire first draft, which we, depending on our our deadline, we we aim for anywhere from a thousand to 2000 words a day each. And when we finish our first draft, then we stop and we take like a week off. We read the book through and we each make separate notes and then we talk about it. And then we decide what needs to be either added, enhanced, changed. And we then we give our assignments again and we continue working. Same thing, emailing each other through the whole thing. And we go through a whole second round. And then if it's ready and depends on the project, sometimes two is enough. Sometimes we have to do it one more time. Then what we used to do is painstakingly copy edit together, which was very hard because we do everything on FaceTime because you're trying to be on the same page and you're, what word are you talking about? And we get a bit frustrating. So now what we do is we'll take turns. One will go through and do a whole copy edit and track changes by herself and then send it to the other one. who will then go through and accept whatever changes she agrees with. And then she'll do a whole separate copy edit. So we're actually kind of getting two complete clean looks at it. And then at that point, when we've done both of them, then we read it one more time each for any errors and then we send it off. It sounds like that would work a lot smoother than trying to go through it together on FaceTime. It does. I mean, we, that was the only time we would get irritated with each other was when we would be doing the editing because, you know, it is, you're like, no, what, where are you? And, and sometimes if you have your percentage on your word, like at a different place and you're not on the same the page numbers change you know there just are all those like little technical things that make it very difficult to do that if you're not physically sitting together in the same room which some which sometimes we have been able to do but of course recently I mean I haven't seen Valerie since February with the pandemic well I was going to ask how it goes when you disagree on something so if you have a plot point that you feel strongly about and she's like yeah no what do you all do but it doesn't sound like that happens very often doesn't happen often. It does happen occasionally. And it's not, you, it's not usually a major thing, although sometimes it is. We, so what we do is we just talk it through and we really look at character. So even though we're writing thrillers and plot is obviously very important, 
when there is a disagreement between what's supposed to happen and what a character would do, we always err in favor of the character. And so usually by the time we talk it through and if somebody says, well, I think this should happen. And the other one says, well, I don't think so. And here's why, because she would never do this and she wouldn't do it because of that. And can you really see her doing that? And usually that will bring us to agreement. I mean, there've only been a couple of instances where we couldn't do that. And then what we did is we emailed our editor and we just said, here's the two different scenarios that we're having a disagreement on. What do you think? And we don't tell her whose is whose. So that's only happened a couple of times. Oh, that's a great solution. Kind of takes it outside of your hands and then you remedy it without one person feeling like maybe they weren't happy with how it turned out. Exactly. Well, do you have a favorite book you've written? Oh, that's a good question. Favorite that I've written. I mean, I think for the live, right, probably The Last Mrs. Parish. I mean, I love them all. I hate to say it, like Circle Dance is my favorite in terms of just the family and the people in it. But The Last Mrs. Parish, because it was like the book I said that really made our career. And then for the Elsie Shaw, I mean, the network, I love. I love both of them, but the network was the one that I feel like was in my heart and in my mind for so long. But yeah, it's, it's really hard. I feel like my books are listening to me, so I don't want to play favorites. There's something about about each one that is my favorite thing. It's like when your kid asks, who's your favorite? Of course, you don't have a favorite, but you have to be careful how you word it so that that wording doesn't get back to the other two. (laughs) Exactly. Do you have any say in what your covers look like? We do. Typically, we're very lucky. In most cases, they really hit it out the park right away. So for The Last Mrs. Parish, the very first design that they showed us, we all fell madly in love with, and same for the paperback. We've had a couple books where we've had to go through a few iterations, but publishers always very receptive to our feedback. I mean, and sometimes it'll just be a subtle change. Maybe we want the, we want a little bit of a different image or a color, but they're, yeah, I mean, they, they do all, obviously all the designing, but they always want us to be happy with that, and same with titles. That is great, because I think it would be really hard to have spent all of this time writing a book and then be unhappy with the cover as it heads out into the world. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And one of my favorite covers, which again, I love all of them, but The Wave Stalker is one of my favorite covers, I think, at this point. I just love the the pink and the gold and the sunglasses. I think it's very striking. It is. It's very distinctive. So the second you see it, you know that that what that book is. Are you working on anything at the present that you would like to share with me? Sure. So we just finished a short story prequel to The Last Mrs. Parish, which is an Audible original, and that will be coming out in November. I don't have a release date yet, but we're very excited about that. And that is the story of Amber before she goes to Bishop's Harbor, Connecticut. It's kind of a whole like origin story for her. So that was a lot of fun. And then the next live book novel is called The Stranger in the Mirror, and that's coming out in July. So we should actually probably start to see cover designs for that, that one soon, which will be exciting. And that's a story of a woman who has amnesia. It was a fun book. That book had a ton of research in it, of course. And then I'm not, I'm just beginning to think about what I'm going to, where I'm going to take Jack and Taylor for the next in the, in their series. You have a lot going on and trying to keep up with all those different storylines. I think these Audible originals are really clever. That's fun, and I'm glad that they're doing those. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun doing it. We, we really enjoyed it, and I'm, I'm excited and looking forward to hearing that one. I've heard from authors that it's a little different writing those since they're just going to be listened to. Did you find that? 
And that initially we, a little bit, because we did, we wanted to make sure that we were kind of cognizant of that, but then the story just took over and, and not, not really, because even all of our other books are also on Audible. So I, I don't, I didn't think about, I didn't, if I think about two things like that too much, I think then it could, it could get in my way kind of hinder your writing. Well, I was curious because I had not thought about that before until I think it was Wendy Walker who mentioned that she felt she just had to kind of structure it a little differently. And I was curious if everybody was viewing it that way or if it just sort of depended on the writer. Yeah. I mean, we listened to some of the original stories just to kind of get a feel for, for what they were like, but no, and I'm trying to think there was something that we, it was funny because Valerie and I were talking about something and about the spelling of something. And then we, she laughed and she goes, well, it doesn't matter. No one's going to be reading it. It's going to be read. (laughs) Just a different perspective. You hadn't really thought about it that way before. I love the title, The Stranger in the Mirror. Thank you. Yeah, that it's funny. That's the one title that we always have working titles and typically they're changed by Harper. I mean, the wife stalker they kept. And then the last time I saw you went through about a million different titles and even the network was supposed to be the Institute, but then Stephen King's book came out like right before. So we had to change it to the network. But The Stranger in the Mirror, that was our working title and they liked it right away. Sales liked it. And so if we were expecting that we would have to go through a lot of iterations. It's always a lot of angst trying to figure out the perfect title. So it was nice that that one just kind of went through. I agree on titles because I think you can get really hung up with how it sounds and what it means. And then obviously many books before it, there are a lot of repeat titles, but I think The Stranger in the Mirror will catch people immediately. And now I can't wait to see what the cover looks like because there's a lot you can do with the cover with that title, I think. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited too. I have, I have no idea when they'll come, but that's always, it's one of my favorite things is when we start to look at all the design. I agree. I always enjoy hearing about how that comes about for particular books. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read lately that you really like and would recommend. Absolutely. So I, so you mentioned Wendy Walker and, and her book, Don't Look For Me, is one of my favorites for this fall, as well as Amy Malloy has a new one coming out, Good Night Beautiful. And I believe that comes out in October. That one, that one is excellent and one that you don't want to miss. And then I'm listening on Audible to Becoming Bulletproof which is an amazing book, nonfiction by Evie Pamporis. And it's, she was a former Secret Service agent. Oh, that sounds really interesting. I haven't heard of that last one. I'm going to have to check it out. Sounds good. Anything, how about you? Because I, I, I can always add stuff to my list. I loved Wendy Walker's book a lot too. And one of my favorite books that I read recently that will come out at the end of October is A Solitude of Wolverines by Alice Henderson. It's a debut and it takes place in Montana and the woman goes to work at a nature preserve to try to monitor wolverines and see what the population is like. And then all of these things go awry. It's a really great, fast paced, interesting read. Well, thank you so much, Lynn, for joining me today in the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Oh, I did as well, Cindy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Elsie Shaw's book can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to KP Regan for the sound editing. Thanks to Susie Leopold of Susie's Approved Book Tours for connecting me with Elsie Shaw. I hope to see you next time. Hi there. 
I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.